In the spring of 2013, a debut crime fiction novel by Robert Galbraith hit the shelves. The book received mostly general reviews, but on the most part, they were mostly positive. The book experienced modest sales for a crime fiction novel. In the first three months, the book sold approximately 8,500 copies, but just three months later, by the summer, sales dripped significantly. And so during the week of July 7th, the book only sold 43 copies. However, one week later, the week of July 14th, the crime fiction novel entitled The Cuckoo's Calling jumped to 17,662 copies sold. So how did a book that was safely sitting at the 4,709th list of Amazon's bestseller jump to number one in just one week? Well, it was revealed that the name Robert Galbraith was really just a pen name for J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series. An accidental name leak from her law firm made all of her crazy Harry Potter fans go in droves and buy this crime fiction novel. Nothing had changed about the book except for a name and a reputation. When I lived in Chicago during college, I worked for a lot of different restaurants. And, and one time we worked for a restaurant and it hit hard times during the recession and it closed down. And a few months later, someone else came in and refurbished it and made it into a new restaurant. And this restaurant was so popular that in order to get a reservation, you had to be put on a three-month waiting list. And there's even a waiting list to get on the waiting list. And you think, well, how, how is it that a restaurant that was previously here in a great location right on Randolph Street next west of the Loop, how does it go out of business? And this one is a towering success. Well, the head chef had recently just won a show called Top Chef that was featured on Bravo, and everyone wanted to, to be at this person's restaurant. Again, a name and a reputation. We as people are all evaluators. We are people who are constantly making interpretations and discernments. And whether it be people or places or experience, all of us, as we go through life, the different experiences and the way that we're brought up, our different personal tastes, lead us to constantly making discernments and judgments and discriminations on things that we like and things that we don't like. In part, this is, a, this is natural. We go to the grocery store and we prefer Crest over Colgate, or we like Coke over Pepsi, or we like to drive Toyota more than Ford. But sometimes the scrutiny we give to things needs to be scrutinized. At times, we can overlook something simply because it doesn't seem attractive, or something that seems attractive is only because of the person behind it. At times, we can grow guilty of being biased or partisan, and we need to change the way we look at things. In our series on 1 Corinthians, we're kind of landing the plane in Paul's first main argument. It's been a couple of weeks since we looked at the book, so let me just give a little bit more context. We've seen so far in this book that the Corinthians are struggling with church unity. They're, they're really on the brink of a disastrous church split, and Paul has really been addressing these last three chapters two big misconceptions. First, 
he's really attacked their understanding of the cross. They, the Corinthians, want to be just like their stoic Corinthian pagan culture. They want to be virtuous. They want to have comfort. But Paul says the message of the cross is actually foolishness to the world. Where central in the cross is the brutalized, shamed, beaten son of man. But not just understanding the message of the cross, the Corinthians, really, they misunderstood the messengers of the cross. And so all in chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul has been correcting their false views about the nature of Christian leadership. He says, really, in many ways, Christian ministers, they don't have any power. They, they may plant, they may water, but, but only God can give the supernatural work of growth. And he encourages the Corinthian believers, do not be people who tear down God's building, his church, but we need to work carefully that we all build God's temple and God's garden. But Paul here, he doesn't want to just leave this main argument on kind of a sour note. He, he wants to maybe say, well, Corinthians, I've been telling you a lot of ways of what not to think, but let me, let me help you with your evaluation process because you do not evaluate things properly. But help me, let me help you do that. And so really in this passage that we're considering these 13 verses, Paul is, is leaving them, kind of like I said, he's, he's ending this argument and, and starting in chapter 5 and on, he's going to just address issue after issue after issue. But right now, he's trying to get some maybe application. If, if we all struggle with, with how we scrutinize things, with our judgments, with our way of discerning, well, how should we understand these things? Let's consider the passage now. Would you turn in your Bibles, if you're not there already, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. That you may learn not to go, learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want, already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And with that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us, us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are disrepute 
To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul knows that if pride and arrogance continues in the church of Jesus Christ, that the fruit of that will continue to be divisions and factions. And so he wants them to be able to properly evaluate. And by properly evaluating, he knows that what will happen is that the grace of our Lord will produce humility. And so really in this passage, I think Paul here, like I said, he's setting up proper evaluation guides. Now, in one sense, when I look at this passage and I think about Hope Community Church, I'm encouraged. You know, a few months ago when I was preaching on 1 Corinthians, someone mentioned, oh, does our church struggle with unity? Is that why you're preaching on, on unity? Now, in one sense, every church needs to hear that message. But, but no, there's a sense in which I, I don't necessarily look at these issues in the Corinthian church and think this directly corresponds to Hope Community Church. But such is the nature of preaching expositional sermons that as we go through a book, the main portion that, that we preach on is what the text is talking about. And this week, the passage is talking about how to properly evaluate Christian ministry. And, and really, if I could summarize these 13 verses that Paul is saying, here, here's a good summary. We'll have it on the screen for you. Leaders are to be humbly received as those who faithfully steward and suffer for the gospel. That, that's what a Christian minister, a Christian leader is all about. They are people who to be humbly received as those who would steward and suffer for the gospel. And so unlike the Corinthians who are boasting in their leaders, who are dividing over their leaders, boasting in their own wisdom, Paul says leaders, here's what they are. They're gifts. A gift cannot be earned. A gift cannot be achieved. A gift is something that is received. And when we receive gifts, that leads us to humility. And so to kind of unpack this main statement, we're going to break up these 13 verses into three sections. And, and what we're going to see here is Paul, again, helping us to properly evaluate Christian ministry, is going to give us three characteristics of Christian servants, to use the language that Paul has of himself and the other apostles. Three characteristics of Christian servants. And the first characteristic, point number one, here it is, in verses one through five, is that servants are judged by their faithful stewardship. So when you think about elders, when you think about pastors, when you think about anyone who really has Christian leadership, how, how should you understand them? What, what, what should you think about? Look what he says in verse one. This is how one should regard us as servants. The word that Paul uses here is an unusual word. It's the idea of an under rower. It's the person at the bottom of a ship who would be like a lowly slave and, and have the oar and, and, and row. And so sometimes a lot of people would say that this word is very reminiscent of the word slave. In fact, if you read a lot of Paul's letters to the other churches, that's how he describes himself. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. This word Servant, in verse 1, is where we get the word minister. The King James Version, when they first made their translation, translated this word as minister. 
Now, I'm somewhat curious. What do you think of when you hear the word minister? Sometimes, unfortunately, that word has kind of been used in connotations of professionalism, where we sometimes think of a minister as someone who is well-pedigreed and academic and polished. And I remember a friend of mine in college said, all ministers should drive a luxury car. He was 19, so he didn't know what he was talking about, right? But a minister is not also someone who maybe some of us might struggle with as just that lifeless, joy-kill, always serious, why can't you ever be happy, the strict, legalistic minister. Here's what a minister is. They are a servant. They are a lowly servant given to the church to serve them. Now, it's important to remember, though, who exactly the servant is accountable to. He says here that they are servants of Christ. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, I mentioned that sometimes in in the American church, we can kind of take this consumerism culture that we live in and apply it to the church. That as long as the patrons around me are not being overly annoying, as long as the, the church has given me the religious consumer needs that I want, as long as the leadership is kind of there for me, I'm in, I'm committed. But as soon as one of those things go, it's discard and I'm going to go somewhere else. The servants here are not personal slaves to the body. Yes, they are given to the body to serve them, but ultimately their accountability is to God, their master. And and, and so servants don't just do every beck and call of those whom they are called to serve Because he goes on to say that servants, more than this, they are stewards of the mysteries of God. Every time Paul uses this term mysteries of God, what he's talking about is those things that were once disclosed in the Old Testament but now have been revealed in Christ. This is what a Christian leader does. They serve God's people by stewarding the gospel. They are to make known what has been revealed in Christ. They are to teach the gospel. More than this, they are to live the gospel. They are to teach about all the implications of how the gospel relates to your life. Consider what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 about his own ministry. He says, For our appeal does not spring from impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. See, that's what a steward is. He is someone who has been entrusted with something. And a good steward only cares about the evaluation of his master. Now, when his master comes back and he has to give an account for what he has been entrusted with, that will be the only evaluation that matters to him in that day. This is, I think, a great passage that fits very nicely with the passage we're considering because Paul also says our aim is not to please men but to please God who knows our hearts. And so this is what we have to understand that the, the way we evaluate Christian ministry is we evaluate them based on are they faithful to what they've been entrusted with. If you take a sampling of books on pastoral ministry, There's dozens written every month, it seems like. You'll find books on leadership, contextualization, oratory, business practices. All of these things are fine and in and of themselves. But according to the passage that we're considering, 
The first and primary way that we should judge or discern or evaluate Christian ministry is not how does he look, how good is he at business, how well does he speak, but whether or not he is faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does he or she love Jesus? Does he unfold the gospel mystery to you? That, that is how we evaluate faithfulness in ministry. And in fact, I think this passage here is, is kind of guarding us from not overly eulogizing one leader or being overly critical of another. It's, it's interesting. That's why Paul says, he's like, Corinthians, I, I really, in many ways, I don't care how you evaluate me. You guys don't evaluate properly anyways. But my conscience, I'm clean before the Lord. But he, here's what it says. It's very interesting, right? He says, verse 4, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. Like, hey, I, I'm doing everything in, in a clean conscience. My heart is clean before myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. He's saying, not even my conscience is the final say. I'm sure there are plenty of false teachers who are just ignorant and confused who have a clean conscience. Paul said, it's, it's, ultimately, it's the Lord who actually sees the motives of our heart. We may look at a Christian minister and we think, man, they, they, they made it all the way and they were doing so great and they were so helpful, but it comes to find out their motives were just selfish and inward and greedy. We tend to look at the big churches, the guys who write the books, the guys with the big platforms, and we think those are the successful ones. And we look at the, the smaller churches, the, the pastors who have the small amount of people, and we think, well, he's not doing that great. Let us not be guilty of, of evaluating the faithfulness of Christian ministry by the way the world evaluates. Only the Lord knows. And so we need to get this right. Why does this matter? Because this bad form of evaluating, it caused pride. It caused arrogance. You know, sometimes we can even be competitive with other churches. My church's leadership, my church, we do things right with that church. They're just a bunch of pragmatists. Those, those churches, they, they don't read the Bible like we read the Bible. Pride is ugly, and the Lord will have none of it in his church. So obviously, Paul knows that if they're going to continue to boast over men, it makes no sense for them to have this high view of men. So imagine if, if you're on a Super Bowl winning team and they, they, they kind of bring out the whole team and the whole team is boasting and glorifying over the water boy. I'm a big golfer. I'm sorry. I use a lot of golfing illustrations, right? But imagine last week when, when John Ram won the Masters, everyone was clamoring about his caddy. In essence, Paul's saying, guys, listen, we're like slaves. Why are you boasting about us? Like, that, that would make no sense for them to be so partisan about people who consider themselves the lowly part of society. So what does this mean for us, this passage? A few things. First, I hope it reminds us all the desperate need we, we have to pray for our leaders, to pray for our pastors, to pray for our elders, that they would faithfully steward what's been entrusted to them. I find it no hard thing to ask you to pray for me, that I would fulfill the ministry that the Lord has given me. 
More than this, I hope you would be encouraged by the leaders that God has brought into your life in the past, currently, and, and will bring in your life to, to love you, to warn you. I mean, friends, there is no greater gift than a faithful leader, pastor, who cares about your soul, who prays for you, who weeps in your distress and rejoices in your victories. A man who would faithfully teach you God's word. This is what, this is what God gives us. So we should, we should pray, we should be thankful to God for all the work that he does. May we not foolishly evaluate our leaders on anything other than their faithful stewardship and ultimately trust the Lord that only he has the final say on whether or not their ministry is commendable. And just briefly, for those of us who are leaders, what a wonderful reminder this passage gives us to live continually quorum Deo before the face of God. To not preach or teach, to garnish an audience, to reject the chronic sin of fear of man, but to live our lives as commendable, knowing that we are called to live lives that are the same in private and in public. Servants are stewards. They've been entrusted. This is how we should evaluate them. Not whether or not they drive a Tesla, or a 2006 Toyota, but whether or not they are faithful to what they've been entrusted. Secondly, we're going to see that servants are gifts of God's grace. Gifts of God's grace. Let me read these verses for us again to refresh our minds. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, in these two verses, we have maybe the most difficult verse in the entire book to interpret and one of the greatest statements in the entire New Testament from my perspective. Um, First, what Paul is really getting at here is, again, he's trying to apply. He's saying, all of these things that I've said so far to you in chapters 2 and 3, I am applying in the context of me and Apollos. Right? And so in one sense, we can learn that all of the principles that Paul has given us in chapters 2 and 3 apply to all Christian ministry. But if you remember, what Paul has been doing in all of these arguments, starting from 110 through the end of 4, is he has been planting key Old Testament references to make his point. And again, their problem is that they are boasting in something other than the Lord. And so that's why when he says, the hard phrase that people debate about is, what does Paul mean when he says to not go beyond what is written? And there's a million things I could say, but I'll just give you my view. So if you remember back in 119, when he's talking about the theology of the cross, he quotes from Isaiah 29 and Job 5. It says this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Later, in 131, he quotes from Jeremiah 9, and he says this, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In chapter 3, what we considered a few weeks ago, he quotes from Job 5 in Psalm 94, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. In essence, what Paul is doing, he's taking a sampling all from the Old Testament and he's showing them that boasting in anything or any person other than the Lord is you are going against, you are going beyond what Scripture tells you to. And so in essence, what we could say here 
is that any type of pride, any type of arrogance is contrary to God's word. Here's why. Because a Christian, of all people, knows that everything he has is of grace. These rhetorical questions that Paul raises are immense and dense. Let's let's look at them really quick. For who sees anything different in you? I mean, that is getting right at the issue. You see, pride, you know what it does? It raises self-esteem. It raises arrogance. It raises, I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you. But here's what grace does. It levels us. If everyone here is only a Christian purely by the grace of God, none of us have any room to boast in our decision, to boast in our gifts. And this is why the most incredible statement, I think, in all the New Testament is right here in this little question. What do you have that you did not receive? For Paul, everything is of grace. Everything has been received. We have come to the Lord with empty hands, but he has filled them. We come to the Lord naked, but he dresses us in his righteousness. We come to the Lord hungry and thirsty, and he gives us our fill. Paul is is really trying to say that that the life of a Christian is someone who does never boast in anything other than the Lord. And so the Corinthians, their boasting is sure evidence that they have lost the gospel of grace. That they've been so influenced by the world to creating this partisan factions in the church to being against one another that, that they think that they, for some reason, have achieved these leaders. That they possess these leaders. But in fact, what Paul is really trying to say here underneath these questions is that leaders, like anything in the Christian life, they are a gift for you. If there's anything good in my ministry that has blessed you, it isn't because Aaron Garnett chose to work really hard. It's because the Lord's grace has been working in me. Anything that a leader has helped lead you to the Lord, baptize you, be there with you on your wedding day. It is God's grace, Paul is saying. And so, friends, you have to know that, 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 that grace, more than any other Christian doctrine, it really pulls the rug from pride and arrogance. If everything truly has been given to us by God, we can't boast as if we deserve it. Everything is freely given to us. Think about this, the cross, the spirit, the wisdom of God, his word, Christian leaders, the fruits of the spirit. We have not earned them. We do not deserve them. They have been given. This is why Christians, more than any other people, should be marked by an extreme, profound humility. We should be the most humble people of all. Because Christians are not people who have just figured things out on their own. Christians are not people who just fix themselves by tying their bootstraps and going to work a little harder. No, no, no. Christians are people who recognize their neediness 
who know their sin, who know that if the Son of Man did not leave the glory of heaven to come to earth and to live a perfect life of righteousness, that if he did not go to the cross and die as a sacrifice for my sins, that I would be utterly lost awaiting the rightful wrath of God. A Christian knows that, that he deserves nothing to the throne. He has no claim on it, but it is given to him freely by his faith in Christ. A Christian's song in life is a sweet melody of grace. Grace is a wonderful word for a Christian, and it's what our lives should be about. And so, so therefore, if we're all about grace, we know I have nothing to boast in myself. But I do have a boast, and I boast in the Lord. And so like anything else in the Christian, those whom Christ has appointed to rule in his church, leaders, pastors, they are gifts to you. They are all different and, and, and they're all bring a variety of ways which they, they help the church flourish. But there is no one person who is more important than the other. And so that's why if, if we tend to be people who like to boast in John MacArthur or John Piper or the late R.C. Sproul or I'm of Tim Keller, if the Lord hated the partisan spirit in the Corinthian church, why do you think he would be okay with it now? And so whether it be Pastor Carl or Pastor Aaron, they are gifts for you to be received, to be humbly received. So we don't evaluate leaders based on what they can give us, but we evaluate them based on gifts freely given for the health of his church. So servants are first, they're stewards. Secondly, they're, they're gifts. But lastly, we're going to see in verses 8 through 13 that servants are models of sacrifice, are models of sacrifice. Now, in these six verses, we see some of the most biting and dripping irony, I would say, in the entire Bible. There's really no sugarcoating it here. People try, but really Paul here is employing rich and deep irony to help these Corinthian believers to take on board what he is talking about. And again, what Paul has been talking about, and I feel like I'm being so repetitive in 1 Corinthians because we come up with this idea again and again, is, is we have this theology of the cross and a theology of glory. You see, the world and every other religion, the world system wants a theology of glory, that God to be revealed in a triumphal spirit, that everything is good, that, that we have arrived and there's so much truth in that as a Christian. We know that Christ, he gloriously rose from the dead. He is reigning now in heaven in our union with Christ. We will reign with Christ. We are reigning in Christ. But there's a tension that it's not yet. That yes, we will reign with Christ, but first we must suffer. And so we have to understand that the, that the Christian life is, is a life where we have the cross first, then we have glory. But we really, really want glory now. We want our comfort. We want status. We want things. We want trips. We want a church that looks nice and smells nice. Not like 
old coffee. We want the loud, the big, the rich, the famous. But Paul here is saying, no, listen, you Corinthians, you just want to be like the world. But, but, but consider us the apostles. And so that's what Paul does here. He's comparing and contrasting an irony between the Corinthians and how they're trying to perceive themselves and the apostles. And so really, what, what's genius about these verses and the irony that Paul's employing, without actually even saying it, is he is giving himself and the apostles as a model of what it looks like to onboard in your own life the message of the cross. Because like I said earlier, at the central part of the cross, of the gospel, is the brutalized, shamed, beaten down son of man who had nowhere to lay his head. And Paul is trying to encourage these Corinthians, you need to get your cues from him, from Jesus, from the suffering servant rather than the world. And so to do this, what Paul does is he kind of sandwiches in a, a few different things. He, he gives three contrasts in verse 10. He gives six tribulations in verses 11 and 12 and three contrasting actions in verse 12 and 13. Let's get, try to go through this a little bit more briefly. Verse eight, he says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Now, I've explained this a little bit already. Some people think that the Corinthians' problem is that they have this, this wrong view of what it means to reign with Christ. And, and really, I don't necessarily think that's the main issue that the Corinthians are struggling with. Their struggle is they want to be like their stoic, pagan, Corinthian culture. So if Paul really thought that their problem was more theological, he would have given them a theological issue, something to think about. But instead, he, he goes more for ethics because their problem is not so much theological as it is sinful. They want to be like the world. And so another way to translate verse 8 is he's kind of saying, so quickly, so soon are you guys so mature and, and ruling like kings. You're the kings and we're just the poor peasants. Paul here says selfishly, oh, that I wish that you did reign. My life would be so much easier if I could just be like you guys. So this irony that he begins to do, he starts off with three contrasts. Verse 10, he says, we are fools for Christ, but you, you guys are wise in Christ. We, the apostles, we are weak, but you guys got it all figured out. You're strong. You, you guys, the world loves you. You're held in honor, but we are in disrepute. He says, this present hour currently right now in the moment we are we hunger we thirst we're poorly dressed we're buffeted homeless and we labor with our own hands Paul here he's not shy talking about his tribulations in fact in 2nd Corinthians you can find another list in which he goes into much more detail about the tribulations he had as an apostle he goes on even though in verse, verse 12, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we, we just take it. We endure it. When slandered, we entreat. And to kind of summarize it all, he says this, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, if you think Paul's tone is too harsh, unbefitting of an apostle, he does change his tune next sermon. We'll see you next week, right? 
He says in verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Okay, so he does love them. It's coming from a good place. But really, I think Paul here is helping us in so many ways. The scandal of the cross for Paul is written over his entire life. For him, it truly is like master, like servant. Participation with the suffering of Christ is an essential part of our following and discipleship of Jesus. There's no way of getting around the New Testament's teaching that if you are a follower of Christ, then you will come and share in the participation of his suffering. Consider what Paul says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Yet the Corinthians, they wanted to be filled. They wanted their comfort. They wanted their status. They're mortified at anything It has to do with weakness. But they aren't the only ones. You don't have to look far in the contemporary church to see success defined in exactly the same ways. The the, the world's way of success and sometimes the church's is, is, is bigger numbers, it's budgets, it's large attendances, the book sales, academic qualifications, celebrity attendance, worldly influence. Don't don't misjudge me here. None of these things are bad in in and of themselves. But the point is is that we need to evaluate these all in light of the cross. In light of the fact that Paul here is giving a model of what it looks like to actually take your cue, to take your, your lead from Jesus. That we don't just run to comfort, that we don't just run to our status but we run towards suffering with Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a brilliant Welch preacher, probably amongst the greatest of English preachers, maybe on on the same par as uh, Charles Spurgeon. But Martin Lloyd-Jones was an accomplished physician. He was a really well-known doctor, and he ran in all the parts of high society and was on the VIP list. I think he was friends with many members of the royal family. But then he got converted, and he joined the ministry. And the first church that he was ever assigned to was a a, a church in a poor part of Welsh, um, of Wales, excuse me, of a Welsh town. And most of his congregation consisted of poor fishermen and poor fisherwomen. And someone came up to him and said, hey, Martin, did you ever miss being someone? Do you you ever miss those days in which you kind of floated in all the VIP lists? Do you miss being an important person? And here's his response. I experience more solidarity with a poor fisherwoman who has the Holy Spirit than I ever experienced with people on those VIP lists that did not have the Holy Spirit. See, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones here is a wonderful example of someone giving up worldly success, worldly accomplishments for the lowly service of the ministry. So what does this mean for us? Does Paul want us to suffer for suffering's sake? 
Do we have to suffer exactly like him to, to onboard the theology of the cross? I don't think so. In fact, he even says here in verse 9, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. I do think there's a sense in which Paul is saying there is a type of reserved suffering meant for the apostles. So I don't think he's just trying to be a masochist, that you just need to suffer because you're called to suffer. We don't need to suffer needlessly. But I do think there's an important question that this passage is raising for us, and the question is this. What, if anything gets in the way of you living sacrificially for the Lord? What, if anything, do you sometimes put before your love for the Lord Jesus and sharing with him in his sufferings? I could speak to all of you, and all your contexts are going to be different. But for some of us, we just really like to be comfortable. We want to be accomplished. We want to have a reputation We want to avoid awkward situations. But here's what a good minister of the Lord Jesus Christ does. He faithfully reminds you of what Jesus says in Matthew 16. That if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? To be a people of the cross, to live according to the wisdom of God's gospel and not according to the world's wisdom. Here's the thing. We know that we will one day indeed reign with Christ and it will be glorious. But until then, we take up our crosses and we suffer. This morning as we were in our hymn sing, I just I can't tell you how rich that time was of reading all those lyrics. We were reading, uh, we were singing the song, The Old Rugged Cross. And I just sat there and I, looked, I just saw right there, I'm like, this is a perfect fit into the sermon. Verse 4 that I will gladly take the shame and the reproach of the cross. And so I'll cling to the old rugged cross till at last I lay all my trophies down. I will cling to the cross and one day we will exchange it for a crown. But right now, as those who circle around the cross, we know that it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, the cross and its message is the wisdom and the power of God. This is how servants live their lives, and this is how they encourage you to live your life. The servants, they, they're, they're stewards. They have something that they've been entrusted with. They are gifts, but they're also models They model sacrifice. And so in conclusion, we need to remember how important it is at times to scrutinize our own scrutiny. Sometimes we don't properly evaluate and discern Christian ministry the right way. All leaders, whether it's Tim Keller, 
John Piper, Pastor Carl, Pastor Aaron, they're to be humbly received as gifts, as those who properly steward and suffer for the gospel. In closing, I want to read an excerpt from a book written to pastors by a pastor. The book is called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. John Piper wrote this book as he kind of just saw the professionalization of the ministry. And he has some sobering words. And I know this is maybe more for pastors, but for all of us, I encourage us that this quote would maybe spur us on to pray for those who labor and teach among us. Here's Piper. He says this. I think God has exhibited us preachers as last of all in the world. We are fools for Christ's sake, but professionals are wise. We are weak, but professionals are strong. Professionals are held in honor. We are in disrepute. We do not try to secure a professional lifestyle, but we are ready to hunger and thirst and be ill-clad and homeless. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the refuse of the world, the offscouring of all things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you many thanks for so many wonderful blessings and gifts that you have given us. And God, we firmly acknowledge and confess again that it is all because of your grace. God, we thank you for the great gifts of those leaders who you brought in our life, Sunday school teachers, parents, pastors. But Lord, we know that the best gift you have given us is the Lord Jesus. And you've given to him, given him to us in full. So Lord, help us to, in all things and in all ways, live a life of humble gratitude, being filled with thanksgiving, knowing that we have been given so much. And although right now, God, we carry our crosses, we know that we will exchange it one day for a crown. Help us to keep our eyes towards that celestial place where all sin, sorrow, tribulation, distress will be gone. Give us faith, give us hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.